folks, and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Season 2, Episode 7, and our final little talk on Lucretius, where we take a look at Book 6 of On the Nature of Things. In this book, Lucretius offers or tries to offer explanations of various natural phenomena, weather, earthquakes, diseases, that kind of thing, from an entirely naturalistic point of view. Now, as with some of the other explanations he offers, many of the explanations in this book are actually incorrect, though some of them, of course, are not far off. Once again, though, I'm not going to dwell on his errors, because I think his epistemology, his method, is much more important. And as he's already explained his methodology pretty clearly, I'm not going to dwell too much on that one either, simply because I don't want to bore you. There are some places where he expands on his epistemology, these I certainly will touch upon, and I suspect that the emphasis in this little talk will be on the end of the book, where he describes a devastating plague in Athens. Not just because we're in the middle of a major public health crisis ourselves, though nothing with the death toll proportionally that he describes, but rather because he is describing the confrontation with death, which is something that he needs to do if he's actually offering consolation in death and trying to explain both life and death in purely naturalistic terms. First, though, as I said, there are a few parts of the earlier sections of Book 6 that I do want to touch upon, where he, I think, wraps up his argument fairly nicely. One bit that I would like to focus on begins around line 92, where he invokes a muse as he launches into an explanation of the weather. And it goes something like this, O crafty muse, Calliope, man's respite, God's delight, now show me to the finish line that has been chalked in white, guide me, winning near the goal, so I may gain the crown of victory in the race with admiration and renown. Now, that may not sound like it's unusual in any way, again, given that he has already explained what he means by the divine, but I find his choice of muses interesting. There are nine muses to choose from, and of all of them, he chooses Calliope, the muse of epic poetry. And I think this is worth pausing on. I find it interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that by invoking the muse of epic poetry, he's declaring something about the subject matter he's about to get into. Epic, of course, is the highest prestige genre of poetry in the ancient world. So he's implicitly saying that what he is doing is worthy of being elevated to that level. A discussion of the weather and how the weather works and where earthquakes come from is, in Lucretius's argument, sufficiently weighty to be held up or presented in the most venerable poetic form available. At least that's one way of reading it. But here's another way of looking at it as well. He's spent the last five books very carefully demolishing any notion of the supernatural, any notion of the gods playing an active role, and any notion of anything at all in the cosmos that isn't subject to a naturalistic explanation. It may look like he is tearing things down, like he 
is shrinking the horizons within which poets, for example, may work. And I think the epic gesture he's making here is a gesture intended to refute that impression, to say, no, there is stuff here that we actually can make poetry of, that we can make great art of. The doings of the world do not become less worthy of poetry simply because they can be explained naturally. I'm thinking right now, and this is entirely subjective, of a wonderful album by a band called Nightwish. They're a a Finnish symphonic metal band, absolutely brilliant. And in 2015, they put out a concept album, Endless Forms Most Beautiful, that is based around the notion of Darwinian evolution. The title, in fact, is taken from the concluding passage of On the Origin of Species. It is a wonderfully composed and arranged, brilliantly performed, passionately performed, symphony-length composition devoted to the naturalistic origins of humanity. That is, the poetic gesture there, and the poetic gesture that Lucretius is making, really throughout this poem, are the same gesture. A recognition, not even an assertion, but a recognition that a naturalistic worldview offers plenty of material for an artist to work with, and plenty of ways for that material to be treated. That is, it does not necessarily come with a diminution of human creative, aesthetic, artistic, and emotional horizons. Personally, and again I'm speaking subjectively in this one, I find that very elevating. In any case, he then goes on to spend about 300 lines offering naturalistic explanations of various natural, largely meteorological phenomena, and then once again circles around to the notion that the gods, such as they are, have no concern with us whatsoever. And concern with them is not going to get you anywhere in terms of understanding the natural world. So let's take a look at another passage and see what he has to say. And this begins at line 379. This is how to understand the thunderbolt, its nature, and by what power it does its deeds, and not by pouring over the mumbo-jumbo furled up in Etruscan scrolls to strain, to grasp signs of the hidden purpose of the gods in vain, by noting of the burning bolt which corner of the skies it starts from, and toward which quarter it then turns and flies, and how it slithers into a closed space, and in what way it flees again, once it has held the whole place in its sway, and how a bolt out of the heavens can pollute a place. But if Jove and the other deities shake the shining face of the sky with a bone-jolting crash, and if the gods can throw fire whatever direction they like, then why don't they lay low scoundrels who flaunt a heinous crime? so that, pierced through the breast, they breathe out flames and serve as a dire warning to the rest. Why is it someone else instead, all innocent of blame, no crime upon his hands is suddenly engulfed in flame and snatched away by a fiery whirlwind swooping from the sky? And as for wasting good throws on deserted places, why, to keep in practice and firm up their biceps, have they found their father does not mind his bolts are blunted on the ground? Why does he stand for it, instead of saving them for 
for his foes? And why again does Jupiter never hurl one of his blows to the earth and crack his thunder when the sky is blue and clear? Does he wait for clouds to mount so that he can climb inside and steer the bolt on its trajectory while he is standing near? Why does he smite the sea? What can his purpose be? What whim? What have the swimming plains of whitecaps ever done to him? And while he's obviously being playful here, and this is a, a wonderfully funny passage, he's also up to something very serious, isn't he? He's pointing out that the behavior of natural phenomena is actually understandable in natural terms. Lightning, for example, tends to happen when the conditions are right for lightning. Whereas if it were under divine control, you would expect it not to be dependent upon the surrounding conditions. That is, he's pointing out that if we throw gods into our explanatory mechanisms, what we're actually doing is creating a lot of trouble for ourselves, making it necessary to go through all sorts of mental gymnastics or apologetics to try to retroactively make it make sense. Same with his question about why, basically, bad things happen to good people and bad people can literally get away with murder. If there were gods and the gods were just, he seems to imply, that simply would not happen. And to try to construct an argument in which that is still good, based upon some plan that's beyond human comprehension, is to move the argument beyond reasonable criticism by making it unfalsifiable. And it's also to fall into danger of becoming, quite frankly, a moral monster. Especially if you come to the conversation with the assumption that the divine must be good and therefore anything that it, it allows to happen must be for the good. Or in other words, what Lucretius is trying to do is head us off from reading the weather as if it had anything to do with human moral conduct. Because we're just not that fucking important. In an infinite cosmos, we simply couldn't be. And in a world in which we are but one species, it still remains ridiculous that we would be. So his playfulness here and his obviously ridiculous depictions are quite clearly addressing the ridiculousness of reading the weather, reading the climate, reading the behavior of the earth as if it were in any way related to a divine judgment on human conduct. A naturalistic explanation simply prevents you from chasing your tail in that particular circle. So instead of inserting unfalsifiable claims as if they were explanations, Lucretius would simply have us seek as many possible explanations as we can find, that is not gravitate towards the one that most immediately satisfies us, and then among the possible candidate explanations, seek there the most likely. Now, this comes with the admission, of course, that sometimes we just don't know. That is, with this whole system, we need to be comfortable with a certain degree of ignorance. But even when we do find an explanation or a possible explanation, he suggests, and this is from about line 703 forward, that we test our explanations 
against the evidence, against our senses. There are also some things for which one reason will not do, which require many explanations, though only one is true. Imagine, for instance, that you spied a body robbed of breath lying in the distance. You might weigh all causes of death in hope of hitting upon the right one, for you cannot know with certainty if it was knife or chill that laid him low, or disease or maybe poison. These are the kinds of things we name, knowing something of this sort is bound to be to blame. And we must deal with many other phenomena the same. And then he goes on to offer an explanation of the flooding of the Nile, and he proposes three different explanations, one of which, the last one, is actually not too far off. That is, he's trying to make us comfortable with the hard fact that sometimes we just can't get the answers and have to make do with the best hypotheses that we have until a better one comes along. That is, the intellectual humility demanded of the method he's proposing is quite considerable. And now that we're all comfortable with the idea of everything having a naturalistic explanation, it's time to move into the rather uncomfortable ending of the poem, where he describes a horrible plague that strikes Athens, and he's working from Thucydides here, I believe. And this particular disaster seems to be the disaster to which he's been building up through his discussion of various largely climatic disasters or weather disasters throughout Book 6. And we might ask, why is he concluding this poem of consolation, of all things, on the description of a horrible plague? And he gets quite graphic. We'll pick it up around line 1045. The symptom first to strike was fiery fever in the head, and both eyes, burning, hectic, bright, were all shot through with red. The throat as well would sweat with blood, all black within, and stung with sores, the pathway of the voice would clog and choke. The tongue, interpreter of the mind, oozed pus, and made limp with the smart, was too heavy to move and rough. Thence the disease would start passing the gullet to fill the chest and flood the heavy heart of the afflicted, and then, indeed, all of the gates of life began to give. From the open mouth there would exhale a rife stink, like the stench of rank unburied corpses left to rot. And then all the powers of the mind and body, brought to the very brink of doom, began to flicker. Mental strain ever danced attendant on intolerable pain. Pleas mingled with moans, ceaseless retching, lasting day and night, was ever causing seizure and cramp and wasting away the strength of men already racked with suffering and worn out. And a little later, at that point, there were many other signs that death was near, a mind that was deranged with melancholy, mad with fear, a frowning brow, an angry and ferocious countenance, the ears athrob with tintinabulation, rapid pants of shallow breath or deep and ragged gasps, a stream of bright sweat ran trickling down the neck, the phlegm was scant and slight, salty and tinged with a yellow hue, and even the hacking cough could scarcely bring it up the throat. The hands never left off their twitching, and the limbs never stopped shaking. 
By and by a chill stole creeping from the toes, and as the end drew nigh the nostrils became pinched. The nose as well grew sharp and thin, the eyes sunk in their sockets, the temples hollowed, and the skin went cold and hard. The mouth was grimaced in a rigid grin, the forehead taut and stretched, and not long afterward limbs lay stiffening in death. Usually at the gleam of the eighth day, or by the shining of the ninth, they would draw their last breath. The odd survivor, for there were some, had not cheated death, for him a wasting away and slow demise still lay in wait, either running sores and black flux from the bowels, or spate of corrupted blood pouring through the nose along with a throbbing head, the patient's might and mane ebbing away with what he bled, and if hemorrhaging of foul blood did not leave him dead, the plague proceeded to the limbs and muscles and progressed even to the genitals. Some people were possessed with such grave terror at the door of death that with a knife they managed to castrate themselves and to hang on to life. Many lingered in this world sans hands or feet, some lost the light of their eyes. This was the price such dread of dying cost. Some fell into deep forgetfulness and lost all store of memories and did not know their own selves any more. Or, if we want to skip right to the end, we have this. Then death had filled all the shrines with congregations of inert corpses. All the temples of the holy ones were weighed down with cadavers, placed where the visitors had prayed, in pressing throngs packed in by sacristans. For at this hour the worship and the awe of the gods had lost most of their power. The present grief was overwhelming. No one any more observed the rites of burial they had observed before, for the whole populace was thrown in disarray and cowed. Each mourner buried his dead just as the time and means allowed. Squalid poverty and sudden disaster would conspire to drive men on to desperate deeds, so they'd place on a pyre constructed by another their own loved ones and set fire to it with wails and lamentation, and often they would shed much blood in the struggle rather than desert their dead. And that's how the poem ends. And it's kind of a weird ending, isn't it? We might wonder, of course, why it ends that way. Why does Lucretia show us, in a poem of consolation, not a consoling image, but rather an image of a city caught in the throes of mass death, and the fear of death, and the social breakdown that goes along with that fear? But of course, it's the fear that's the problem, isn't it? He speaks, for example, of people castrating themselves, cutting off their infested testicles so that they can squeeze a few more days out of life because they're so afraid to die. And it's the fear of death, of course, that Lucretius is trying to cure. And now he's giving us an example of what the actual fear of death does. And the example is a portrait of a society not merely dying of sickness, but of a society dying from the fear of death. I wonder, I often wonder when I look at this poem, whether he's actually making an argument, among other things, for death with dignity. Because what he shows us is people terrified to die and holding on to life when all hope and all possibility of both recovery and any quality of life is gone. 
and we know the Romans did not frown on suicide for other causes. So I think what he's partly arguing here is that the fear of death, which he attributes to religion, causes suffering, not just emotional suffering, which is bad enough, but horrible, horrible physical suffering and the emotional suffering that goes along with that as well. And here, of course, we need to keep distinct death and dying. He's already established earlier in the poem that, from his point of view, death is nothing. When you're dead, you're not there, so you can't suffer. But when you're dying, you're not dead yet, you're still alive, and therefore you still can. So, the logic of prolonging your suffering, when the end is simply not suffering, is pretty skewed, is, is pretty problematic. And if people had uh, an, an adequate understanding of their own nature without any superstitious impositions, as he describes them, then that suffering, both physical and psychological, would not be a problem. And there are a number of reasons as well. People are, why are people afraid to die? Well, he describes earlier on in the poem people being afraid to die because they're afraid of eternal torment. So by holding on to life, even when all hope is gone and all you have is pain, you're, you're making a losing bargain by Lucretius's logic because there is no post-mortem torture but you're also subjecting yourself basically to pre-mortem torture for no good reason because the thing you fear is not going to happen. So what he's giving Memmius is an extreme portrait, I think, of what it looks like to die in fear of death after giving him an argument as to why he should not fear death. He's showing him the consequences of that fear taken to its extreme. At least that's the way I read the poem. And, and I do, as I said, think there is an argument in there for death with dignity, for not maintaining life beyond a certain point, or for not making extreme efforts, at least, to maintain life when life has become nothing but suffering. And on that note, I think this about wraps up Lucretius. I hope these talks have achieved a few modest goals. Most importantly, I hope you've enjoyed them. And I hope, if you're not familiar with Lucretius, that this has maybe aroused a bit of curiosity in you and that you might pick up his book and give him a read. If you do, as I think I've mentioned in a past episode, I recommend A. Stallings Translation, which is the one I've been reading from. There are many bad translations out there, but this one is particularly wonderful. I hope as well to have given you a sense of how not new some of the defining ideas of the modern world actually are. And if you're interested in reading a good book on Lucretius's rediscovery and influence in early modernity, I recommend Stephen Greenblatt's The Swerve very, very highly. But yeah, the sense that the world is knowable in human terms, and that our knowledge doesn't rely on any kind of divine revelation, and that we're not beholden to any supernatural being for our existence or our behavior, is not a new idea. It was actively suppressed in the West for about a thousand years, but it's not a new idea. Nor is the notion that there is an inherent human dignity that again is not beholden to anything supernatural but arises simply from our own being, and that this dignity is far more deserving of our piety 
than the main character in any number of myths, ancient or modern. That is what I hope with this extended study of a really often overlooked text is that I've given you a sense, particularly if you're someone who is wrestling or has wrestled with these questions, that you're not alone, either geographically or temporally. These are questions that people have always asked. And the skeptical position where the supernatural is concerned is not a new position. I also hope to convey a sense that a naturalist understanding of the cosmos and of oneself does not entail a diminution of wonder at either oneself or the cosmos in which one lives. That life is good. It's a good in itself. That pleasure is not morally tainted. That while the process of dying is to be feared because it's likely to be painful, death itself is not. And that no one ought ever live their life afraid of what might happen to them after they die because of some imaginary concept of sin which of course in a naturalistic context is intellectually incoherent anyway. And if there is one idea that I was really hoping to get across with this entire reading study, it's that. That the notion of sin is nonsensical. Nobody is ever born broken or in need of salvation. A good human life is lived in this life and shared with other humans. It includes participation in community. It includes family life. It includes sex and other pleasures. And it includes the desire and the drive to understand. And none of these in themselves are morally tainted. On that note, I think I'll sign off. Thank you again for listening. If you'd like to get a hold of me on email, you can find me at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com, on Facebook at Eclectic Humanist, and on Twitter at EC Humanist. If you're enjoying these talks, please do share them. I will certainly appreciate the bump in listenership. And if you're listening on YouTube, maybe also give a like and subscribe. Why not? It costs you nothing and it helps me quite a bit. As for moving forward, there are a few things I'm considering doing next week. I'm not exactly sure which one, but all of them are coming up on the near horizon, I think. I haven't done anything on Buddhism yet. And... Uh, One of my favorite books is the Diamond Sutra, so I think I'd like to give that one a fairly close examination at some time. But I'm also really interested in questions of post-humanism, so probably one of those will be up next week. It's as much a mystery to me as it is to you. Until then, though, thank you very much again, and as always, be kind to each other.